Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we are coming to you from both Washington, D.C. and from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the host city of the Democratic National Convention. The big issue of the week has been about unifying the Democratic Party after a bruising primary fight between Democratic nominee Hillary Clinton and the man she dispatched, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. But while Sanders supporters have, to some extent, made peace with Clinton's nomination, one issue has emerged that they've refused to back down on, the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. We'll discuss how the TPP seized all this attention, and we'll speak to Sanders supporters about where they're taking their movement next. Of course, the Democratic National Convention kicked off under a black cloud, and we're not talking about the intermittent downpours that have drenched the attendees. Emails hacked from the servers of the Democratic National Committee were published by WikiLeaks ahead of the Democrats' confab, causing enough embarrassment that DNC Chairwoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz was forced to resign her position. Now, since then, the matter has only grown more concerning, with security experts fingering Russia for the original hack and Vladimir Putin's BFF Donald Trump publicly soliciting further assistance from Russia's state-sponsored spies. Finally, our own Sam Stein and Ryan Grimm sat down for an interview with Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid in Philadelphia. They asked him what he'd say to his colleague Bernie Sanders now that the campaign is finally over, and what he thought about Donald Trump withholding his income tax returns. Reid got quite colorful. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Christine Canetta, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Grimm, Mike McAuliffe, and Sam Stein. Here's what happened first. Hello, my fellow Americans and friends around the world, and welcome to another edition of So That Happened, your weekly digest of politics and detritus. My name is Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post, and I'm really glad to bring you news of the goings-on in Philadelphia at the Democratic National Convention. We have a really great show for you this week. We're going to kick things off right away by sending you to Philadelphia, where the Huffington Post's Sam Stein and Ryan Grimm caught up with Senate Minority Leader and Nevada Democratic Senator Harry Reid. I'm curious what your advice is to Bernie Sanders uh, as he goes from this position to back in the Senate. What, what would you what would you tell him to do with his newfound influence? The first thing I would tell Bernie, as I have, is I think he should reflect on what he's been able to do for our country. Look at this Democratic platform. Bernie Sanders did it. Um, I think what he's done uh, has been just one of the most significant historical things in the history of the country. He's energized people that were not energized before. Think about this. In our platform, we're doing things such as giving kids the ability to go to school and not have to worry about going in debt for the rest of their lives, minimum wage, all these wonderful things that he has done on his own. Uh, I would also tell him to stop and reflect what he has done in the Senate. I'm a witness to that. You can ask Bernie this. Bernie said, uh, 
When he went to the House, people didn't treat him very well. He waited around for committee assignments. He came to the Senate. I was so glad to get him. I gave him key, key committee assignments. He was stunned. Help, put him there, put him on the budget committee. I, I took good care of Bernie Sanders. Veterans, he got that. He, he, people said, you can't let him be chair of the Veterans Committee. He did a magnificent job there. Uh, passed one of the most important veterans bills that we've done in the last 20 years. So I've told Bernie, and here's how I feel about it, reflect on what you accomplished in the Senate and as running for president. And what's the future for you? Well, there are major committee assignments awaiting him. And I think Bernie Sanders will do as well there as he's done in his previous Senate assignments. Why do you think some of his supporters, and I know it's a small, it's a minority, I know that, small minority, but why do you think some of his supporters don't see the accomplishments? Um, you know, Sarah Silverman, the comedian, was on stage saying, you sound ridiculous to the Bernie or bus people. Do you, do you think they sound ridiculous? Uh, I'm not going to uh, judge what their game is. I know one of I know that one of them said that she wasn't going to vote for um, Clinton. That she would rather vote for a Green Party or vote for nobody as she can in Nevada. None of the above. So here's what I say: thousands and thousands of people in that auditorium last night. How many walked out? Less than a hundred. Pretty good. Pretty good average there. Uh, so. I don't have anything to say to them. I just think that I hope they stay involved in the process. And I think their vote for a Green Party candidate is a wasted vote? Well, if that's the way, they, if that's what they want to do, let them do it. I mean, you know, um, we've had experiences with some of those. Uh, I, I, I lost my uh, stomach for Ralph Nader when he ruined, stopped us from electing a Democratic president. He's never entered my office since then. About four years ago when uh, we were doing an interview, uh, you, you had just recently talked to somebody who had seen Mitt Romney's tax returns. Where Donald Trump isn't going to release his. Well, you know, my, here's, <laughs> here, here's my Mitt Romney deal. Uh, as everybody knows now, uh, I knew that his tax returns would have shown that he would pay a lot of taxes. And everyone should understand, as much as I pushed on that, he's never released his taxes. He released a summary and part of one year. So I'm glad that I, I tried to get somebody else to do it. I tried to get the DSCC, I tried to get the DNC, I tried to get anybody to do it. No one would do it, so I was stuck with doing it because I felt it was important. And I was, you will recall, I was relentless. I wouldn't, wouldn't stop that. Um, Donald Trump can't uh, show us his tax returns. Why? Because he's a fraud. First of all, Donald Trump I'm sure he has money, but he's not. He's not in the class of really rich people. That's obvious from the primary. He spent very little money. He doesn't have money. He's a leveraged guy. If he had taken the money that his dad gave him, which was millions, and just put it in the bank, he'd be rich now. But he, is, he has wasted all that money in bad deals. Look what he I know something about gaming. I, I was chairman of the Nevada Gaming Commission when Atlantic City became the second place in America that had legalized gambling. He has done such a disservice to that community. He has been, he has ripped those places off and hurt everybody there except himself. And he boasts about it. He boasts about it. So he can't, he can't show his tax returns because um, he probably is being audited. Probably has been a lot. But that doesn't stop you from showing your tax returns from previous years. 
So, no, he can't show us his returns. He's, he's a first-class uh, phony as to how much money he has. A regular way. He's an ostentatious guy. He has a beautiful apartment and, you know, he has a, uh, spends a lot of corporate money on himself, but uh, no. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone. I'm Zach Carter, joined by a whole bunch of people from the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. After a dark and ugly Republican National Convention, Democratic Party leaders had hoped that their event would be a show of unity, harmony and love. But the first night of festivities in Philadelphia was defined by raucous conflict between Bernie Sanders supporters and the DNC leadership. God, you have given us wisdom. Now give us courage for the facing of this hour. We talked to a few Hillary Clinton supporters and asked them what they thought about the protests. Um, I have a lot of Bernie friends, and I'm a Hillary Clinton supporter. And I have nothing but respect for them. To boo, just, just listen. Just hear what our leaders have to say. And um, you may disagree, but you can still have respect for our leaders. I think the there's been some opposition. You know, you're going to have protests in most things. And because these people feel a little disappointed that their candidate did not make it, they have, you know, I'm, I'm just advising them of being a little older that it's better to take an issue and go on an issue. And I think that's what they did yesterday. They took the issue of TPP. But Bernie Sanders supporters aren't quite as optimistic as the Clinton crew. We felt like Bernie was just kind of jipped in this election with the email leak and saying that the scales were kind of tipped in Hillary's favor from the beginning. And so it's just really disappointing, and we're expressing our grievances. Some of the things that are, we want to see are in the platform, but the platform's not non-binding. So we can't guarantee that those things are going to end up happening, and we know what happens in Congress when there's different fights that, that get involved. Um, so it's something that we're looking to 
hear about more, to see some tangible results, to see some specifics um, instead of the lip service that is kind of happening in the platform. The speeches that we had last night, some of the struggles were that, you know, the president spoke, it was amazing, and Joe Biden spoke, and it was amazing. And then we had people like Bloomberg, and since when does the Democratic Convention need to have moderate Republicans speaking at it? So it just felt very centric, and it felt like they're moving away from us in their actual rhetoric, even though they're saying that we have the most progressive platform ever. So it's clear that there was real conflict at the convention, but the dominant narrative about the source of that conflict is wrong. Bernie Sanders supporters lost. They're sad. Many of them are angry. But they're human beings who care deeply about democracy, who had to raise money to come to Philadelphia and make their voices heard. And they bothered to do that. The actual delegates who support Hillary Clinton, not the D.C. operatives running the convention, they really care about democracy, too. And the people we talk to are not really angry with Sanders people. The only truly nasty forces at the convention were from D.C., political journalists looking down on Bernie delegates, or party officials offended by the idea that the Democratic Party could be the subject of a Democratic protest. We'll be right back. back at the democratic national convention this week a big issue emerged as the sort of phantom overhang of the whole proceedings and this is of course the trans pacific partnership trade deal uh joining me to talk about the tpp and how it affected uh the goings-on at the democratic national convention we've got arthur delaney hi and uh we have mike mcauliffe Hey. And I'll just say right up front, because we're going to talk about him inevitably later in the segment, Mike has no is no, not related to Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe. No, that guy's got an extraneous E on the end of his name. It's Correct. Just, he's got to fix that. Yeah, okay, so not related. Um, so this was a big issue at the DNC, and it was a widely, uh, it, was, it was characterized mostly by Bernie Sanders supporters decrying the Trans-Pacific Partnership because there were a lot of instances reported of reporters talking to these Bernie guys and asking them if they knew anything specific about the TPP and them kind of choking on the question. Let me just start by saying that, like, the kind of principled objections people do have to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So bear with me. The TPP is a trade deal similar to NAFTA. It involves uh, America partnering with Pacific Rim nations. Um, and it is kind of of a piece of similar global trade agreements. And in, in many ways, people object to TPP for the same reasons they objected to previous agreements. Chief among them, uh, this concept called investor state dispute settlement. Like a lot of global trade agreements, the TPP grants corporations the right to challenge laws passed by other member nations that are deemed to be restrictionist in international tribunal settings. Uh, and these tribunals have the final say in arbitration. Now, lefties don't like this because the laws most likely be challenged by trade partners are environmental restrictions, labor rights, and antitrust regulations. Conservatives don't like this because they simply have a basic objection to international bodies interfering in America's sovereign affairs. It's worth noting that there's no corresponding right in these dispute settlements for labor unions or environmental groups or humanitarian NGOs to issue the same kind of challenges. A more specific criticism of TPP that's emerged involves the country of Malaysia. Malaysia is a linchpin 
pin partner in the TPP, and it's well known on the world stage for being a bad actor in terms of human trafficking and slave labor. Rather than use the TPP as a basis to force much-needed reform from Malaysia, the State Department, which previously ranked the nation as a Tier 3 violator of human trafficking laws, which was the worst kind of tier to be on, it was a certification that would have prohibited them from being part of this partnership, conveniently reclassified Malaysia as a Tier 2 violator, Uh which allowed them to participate. So the United States withdrew a vital human rights stick and fed Malaysia a bunch of carrots they hadn't earned. Unless you think that not holding people accountable creates a culture of accountability by accident, I'll point out that the DOJ just froze $1 billion in assets that Malaysia's prime minister embezzled from his own sovereign wealth fund. No! Oh, these guys know how to trade. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Good point. So, but the benefit of the TPP would be cheap blue jeans. Indeed it would. Slim fit. Yep. Uh, and, and, you know, I think a lot of Americans don't understand that sometimes the, the cost of keeping costs down involve uh, offshoring a lot of labor to countries that don't have labor standards, don't have wage standards. Uh, and that's why your, your, uh, your American apparel shirts are what they are. So wor- working people could be poorer, but the televisions and blue jeans would be correspondingly cheaper. Yes. But then a bunch of rich guys would be way richer. It's a fun. It's a fun way of keeping people at a distance from the true cost and true value of commodities that they buy. But so, this was huge on the floor of the convention. You could see it every night. Signs every night. Big TPP, no TPP signs. Big slash and the chants going up, yeah. going up. All the time. Uh, and yeah, and yeah, but people were never talking about it on the stage. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that I think Democrats really want to shy away from even mentioning, except for Bernie Sanders. Except who, for Bernie Sanders, right? A speech with it. Yep, that's right. And significantly, Bernie Sanders, who mainly stuck to his script uh, the night he gave his uh, sort of party unity speech, the one big deviation that he uh, that he, uh, he he offered the crowd was he urged his supporters to make sure that no votes for TPP would come up in the lame duck session of Congress between uh, election day and the start of what Sanders would hope to be a Hillary Clinton president. And, and some Republicans are on board with that. For instance, the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, no lame duck vote on TPP. So is there going to be a lame duck vote on TPP? Mike? Oh, who knows, man? That's like the kind of thing where nobody's paying attention and they decide, all right, let's do this thing quick before there's time to let people get mobilized. So um, probably not, but... Congress is crazy, man. They do all kinds of things all the time. They just like roll that stuff out there at eleven o'clock at night and vote the next day. So uh, you, it you could never happen. know when a lame duck might quack. Right. Well, it's the, true, right? And the thing to remember about the TPP is that Tim Kaine and a lot of other Democrats, well, not not too many, mostly Republicans, voted for fast track. Do you remember fast track? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that goes to the floor. You get a simple majority vote. You can't amend it. You can't stall it in the Senate, and the sucker passes. So if it goes out there, it's going to go fast. And Fast Track was approved yeah, it was last approved. year. It was so approved. we've we've got a runway for the TPP to land on. We've got we a do. slip and slide for the TPP to land on. Right. No, some of the Republicans are thinking better of it now. There's at least, um, I don't remember who they are, but there's at least three who voted for that Fast Track who are now opposing TPP. So it's, it's a pretty narrow margin, only passed by five votes. So, so. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump have whipped up opposition to these kinds of trade deals, you know, with Trump characteristically saying, it's a bad deal. Like, yeah, I can get a better deal. 
this is an interesting this is an interesting thing that's happening because Trump is continuing something in the Republican Party that really has started in previous election cycles, which is this pairing away uh, of the Republican Party from their sort of traditional base within the Chamber of Commerce, right? Correct. I mean, this it, it's actually kind of become now, in some circles, a pejorative to say that guy is a Chamber of Commerce Republican. Yeah, and uh, even people like Newt Gingrich have, have said that they're not as free trade as they've been assumed to be. For their entire careers, yeah, that's it's yeah, it's it's very it's 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 staggering. And Donald Trump's running mate, Mike Pence, has been a really fervent cheerleader of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, at which he touted as governor of Indiana. Uh, but he's also, when he was in Congress, put his name to every trade agreement that came came across his desk, and and cheerled for those as well. Right, he was part of the Republican leadership there, and he was he was pushing all that stuff, the Central American trade deals. He was he was all in on Korea. He was trying to get all that stuff passed. He Where, helped. Where's Pence on TPP right now? Uh, I haven't heard a lot from Pence on TPP. No, TV. it's been no, quiet. It's been it's, very quiet. <laughs> the focus has been on Democrats, and in particular yeah. on Hillary Clinton, whose TPP position got parsed a bit this week. Well, a little bit, yeah, yeah. We were we were talking before this that uh, the line was uh, at at some point when she was when she was at the State Department as Secretary of State, she referred to this as the the gold standard. Uh, the gold standard of trade agreements. Yeah, she she said that more than once. She was very supportive of it. There's something like 40 speeches that you know TPP opponents can point to that say Hillary Clinton was in favor of it. So, so then, she, then what happened? Well, so she pops out of the State Department. She leaves the State Department and she she goes outside uh, down on down on down on the street there and puts her finger in the wind and and discovers, holy shit, man! I didn't think the wind was blowing this way. And suddenly. Uh, her her opposition to TPP uh, had to sort of bloom anew, and she had to sort of navigate the minefield that she created for herself by calling it the gold standard. Yeah, well, she sa- she now says she hoped it would be the gold standard, and it didn't quite meet her hopes. So she needs to like tweak some things that investors state dispute authority that you were talking about and some of the uh, ability to enforce labor standards, environmental standards. Now those aren't up to snuff for her. So, you know, she's she's come to, I don't know, Jesus isn't the right thing there. Right. But no, she's come around to it. Mike we're, McAuliffe, there was an amazing moment this week. Oh, this is where, incredible. Uh, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe and longtime Clinton ally was questioned on TPP by reporters. And he he apparently screwed this up. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, well, he did botch it. I mean, mostly it's a talking point kind of thing because, you know, well, yeah. when when, well, yeah, well, when Kane came out and then Nancy Pelosi, like the same day, she wrote a letter saying they oppose TPP in its current form. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And they pointed to some of the stuff that Hillary has said, you know, post-Secretary of State days that she wants to change. Okay, so McAuliffe says, oh, she's for TPP, she just needs some changes. So, I mean, that's consistent, but if you say for TPP at all, you know, any version of it, it's just, you know, the alarm bells go off and people say, aha. And in fact, Trump said, see, Terry McAuliffe just proved Hillary Clinton's lying to you again. A Clinton campaign spokesman, Brian Fallon, went on TV and said, Terry McAuliffe doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. Verbatim what he said. Right, and John Podesta, the uh, the campaign chairman, tweeted immediately that Hillary's against it before you know she's elected, and she's against it after she's elected. Period. 
You know, because it, it really, it's a problem, and you're going to hear it from Trump over and over again, I bet. I mean, McAuliffe did basically winkingly re- imply that Clinton wanted TPP to pass in the lame duck, so it was off her plate as far as the decision she'd have to make completely, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to read into it a little bit, you know. There I was, reading into it. Yeah, well, that's okay. You know, that's what we all do, right? Because he's a politician, and he's sort of notoriously uh, crafty, shall we say, with the words. Yeah. So you're allowed to read into stuff like that. But, you know, like like Arthur was saying before, it's uh, with Trump running around out there, and you got McConnell saying, no, we're not going to do it. They have to all walk back pretty far yeah. uh, on their words in order to, to pass it through Congress and the lame duck. And, you know, okay, you got two years till the next election, so maybe they hope the Fuhrer would die down, but they would hurt. I think it would hurt them if they did it. I can tell you, I was listening to Gwen Ifill on NPR last night refer to, sorry, this week. Yeah, it wasn't, uh, well, whatever night it was. Whatever night it was. It wasn't last night. Right. Uh, Long week. Um, I was listening to Gwen Ifill talk to Terry McAuliffe on NPR, and, uh, uh, whoever needed to sort of beat the message into him had had successfully done so because he was walking it back really, really quite awkwardly because at the same time, he's the governor of Virginia. And I think governors definitely have a different perspective on trade agreements than 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 uh, than, than the other politicians because governors of states really kind of make their bacon based upon the amount of economic development they can bring to their state. And so trade agreements are things they generally tend to settle on. That's why Mike Pence was talking it up in Indiana. Uh, And and Terry McAuliffe is sort of trying to make his bones on being someone who opens international markets and brings money to Virginia. And so he was still very, very quite enthusiastic about the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal, but he was suddenly very enthusiastic in equal measure about letting Hillary Clinton off the hook about it. So he he didn't do it. He had a code switching task that he <laughs> failed. Basically, that's a really yeah. good way of putting it. Yeah, yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. On, on a night on a, at, at a convention where so many people took to the stage and pulled off their code switching tasks, uh, President Obama being one of them, Terry McAuliffe proved not to be up to the task. So just because we're in the weeds right now, I just feel like I should point out that we are absolutely bathing in phoniness. <laughs> like this yeah. is a bath of phony. <laughs> Right, yep. like we're drowning yep. in phoniness by parsing right. these positions. Yeah, it's true. You're absolutely yeah. right. You're absolutely right. I think that, I think that. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. I would say probably the vast majority of Democrats and the vast majority of Republicans would, if they had a clear path to do so without being scandalized, definitely pass TPP because it is what the people who fund their campaigns have been whispering in their ears. All this time, obviously, there are probably some principal people in both parts who don't listen to their corporate masters and and won't pass this or won't vote for it in any form. But the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of the people who uh, who oppose this are people who wish to God they could just like ink the deal. Um, and the reason, and the only reason that they're being kept back is really because of people like those Bernie Sanders supporters, people who can make it scandalous for this to happen. This is the core. Of the primary battles on both sides, yeah, with corporate centrists uh, sort of needing to hide their past selves, possibly their true selves, in an effort to pander 
to people who are more concerned about workers than they are. And or have who are just been. really angry at losing all those jobs all, all, after all those years. I mean, come on, NAFTA, Clinton, it, it's his baby, right? So and you got some angry people running around all those Rust Belt states who are ready to punish somebody. But this is why the TPP signs you saw on TV were emblematic of the entire Sanders-Clinton battle, even the Trump-GOP elite battle. Like yeah. This was really everything about what was different and from maybe, Sanders you and know Clinton. What? Maybe some people can't articulate it that well, but it's still a real window into the lives of people who are consistently on the outside of politics looking in, outside this bubble we all live in looking in. Um, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, a lot of people, they they aren't able to, like, summon up a sophisticated response to a reporter, why do you oppose a thing when they're put on the spot like that? All they know is that their wages haven't gone up, their jobs haven't improved, their communities haven't improved, and no one from inside this bubble is going out there to actually really talk to those people and explain what they're going to do to help. Uh, why shouldn't they hold a, a three-letter sign that, you know, TPP as an icon for all that's gone wrong? It's, I mean, it's a massive deal between... Many countries, forty percent of the global economy, forty percent deli- deliberately done this way so that it's obscure and you yeah. can't read it. We don't actually know exactly what's in the deal. Well, you, a- you can read it now. There's like six thousand pages or whatever it is. I'm sorry, but it's all written in legalese. It right. refers yeah. back that, right. to previous I, I, deals. You I repeated, be an expert. right? I repeated a talking point yeah. that is old from when yeah. it wasn't. Available like yeah, well, you can now. read it now, but you can't really you can't read it. Really yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like I say to to stuck up fucking reporters who put ordinary people on the spot, you don't know anything about TPP. You know, go fuck yourself, man. It was secret for a long time. No one knew what the fuck was in it, and now it's too long and people can't read it. Give ordinary people a fucking break. Oh man. Oh yeah. Wow. It hurt. I'm not talking about you guys. Oh, you guys. oh, okay. All right. Then. Yeah, all right, yeah, guys. yeah, give them a break, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Guys, thanks for talking about this. It's a huge issue, and uh, maybe it's going away, but we'll wait for that lame duck session to see if any of those quackers take flight. Ah, quack. <laughs> Perfect. We'll be right back. We're back this week at the Democratic National Convention. We have seen a furtive attempt among Democrats to present their nominee, Hillary Clinton, as the alternative to Donald Trump that America needs. But the convention has been overshadowed right from the start by a hack of the Democratic National Committee's uh, data. Uh, what has been released ahead of the what was released ahead of the convention uh, were a number of emails that were potentially embarrassing to members of the Democratic National Committee, specifically because they uh, made fun of Bernie Sanders. They uh, gave a sort of more proven basis for the notion that the committee had their finger on the scale for Hillary Clinton. And, of course, on top of all that, there was all kinds of personal information released. It's been a bad week. It's already claimed the chairmanship of Debbie Wasserman Schultz. And to add to all of this, it's also inflamed that curiosity about Donald Trump's connections with Vladimir Putin because it now seems that the originators of the hack or the people who pulled it off in the first place 
were state-sponsored actors from Russia. Joining us to talk about this and try to make sense of what has been a bewildering story uh, is Arthur Delaney. Hi. And our good friend and foreign policy reporter, Akbar Ahmed. Hi. So did the Russians do this? There's, um, there's quite a lot of evidence. Uh, a lot of people are disputing it. What we know for sure is that in June, the committee was hacked by definitely people connected to Russia, right? What WikiLeaks is saying is what they have gotten, this, this leak of emails, is not necessarily what was hacked in June. They say we could have gotten it in different ways. However, people who've analyzed this, uh, there are security companies that specialize in this, tracking where uh, stolen data comes from. CrowdStrike is one of those companies. It said Russian connection. There are Cyrillic characters. We can tell. Has Julian Assange explicitly denied yeah. that there is a Russian connection? He has said... Or has he said we could have gotten it anyway? I'm he simply saw, not saying how we got it. He sort of waffles. Yeah, yeah he, he doesn't of, explicit. Yeah. He said we don't know the source. Could have been Russian, could have not been. Because the way the WikiLeaks apparatus works is anyone can go in and drop whatever they want to without being identified. Now, when this when this hack originated, it was uh, it was originally the person who claimed to have done it was someone who was styling himself after the Guccifer hacker, who was yeah. the first person who brought it who's, who who uh, brought attention right. to Hillary Clinton's private email server. Right. In that case, he's a, he styled himself after a Romanian internet right. hacker. Uh, but a lot of people have analyzed this and de- have determined that whoever this hacker is, he's surely not Romanian. And as you said. <laughs> All the there's 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 metadata yeah. uh, that's evidence in the stuff that was transferred to WikiLeaks that indicate Russians had their fingers. No, on well, this. metadata is like when you right click on a file and say get info, and yeah. that, and and it was all in Russian. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the PDF was created. And a lot of in people Russian. say a lot of people say yeah. that this is the fact that this metadata exists. Uh, and is perceivable by security security uh, researchers is that it, it's clear it wasn't actually a hacker that did it, but probably state sponsored. Uh, right. And um, a reporter from Motherboard, which is Vice's technology sort of arm, um, had a conversation with this Kuchifer 2.0 person or people, some Twitter account claiming to belong to them, in which the person stumbled over really basic Romanian. So if you were Romanian, like you would not talk like this. Um, is what this reporter pointed out. Right. So what's what's becoming more apparent about this is that it's potentially people trying to sway the election in Donald Trump's favor. It's and and uh, I think Franklin, for more than anyone else at Slate, uh, has pointed out that Watergate was a hack of the DNC, a breach of the DNC's offices yes. in a hotel when they didn't get anything. And, and what Donald Trump is saying, which I think it's really important for the Clinton campaign to realize, is Hillary is such a great evil, we don't care where it's come from. Donald Trump has now called for Russia to hack more and give us whatever else we can get about the Hillary emails. And a lot of people being interviewed about this are like, yes, we want to see it. We don't care if Russia is doing it. And this is a memo for the Clinton campaign going around saying the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. doesn't work. People think you're a warmonger anyway. You're trying to create global conflict again by blaming Russia is not going to work for you. Explain to people why it's bad for Donald Trump to encourage a foreign power to invade the State Department's security system. So how would you advise Hillary Clinton to um, to actually go about doing that? I've sort of been, I, I did a piece on this last week, I've sort of been disappointed by their entire response to Trump on foreign policy because they don't actually explain what's wrong. They just say, this is new and it's dangerous. And Americans say, well, what's old was pretty dangerous too. We went to war in Iraq sucked. We don't want this. Right. They haven't told us 
for instance, under response to Trump's NATO remarks, where he said abandon NATO, the Western Security Alliance, form to counter Russia. They haven't explained why NATO is important. They just say, we need NATO. The tradition is to stand by NATO. And, and again, with the response to Russia, it's been Vladimir Putin bad. Explain to voters why Vladimir Putin is. Democrats do tend to fall back on kind of highfalutin ideas before getting into the weeds of it. And yeah. Hillary Clinton particularly is a strange candidate in that she seems to like like fall into the defensive crouch more readily than going on offense. And I think that it's going to really require a different approach now that Donald Trump has essentially solicited the aid of Russian hackers, Uh, which, by the way, has been passed off as a joke. But after he appeared in the press conference and told reporters that he wanted Russia to do that, he took to Twitter and asked them to do it again. Um, So this is not a ha-ha-ha-ha kind of joke situation. This seems to be something that he's sincerely into. So So why is Vladimir Putin bad? One reason that I've heard is that he kills reporters. Mm-hmm. Well, lots of other people, you know, I mean, people care about reporters and definitely Anna Polskova, like a lot of important journalists in Russia have suffered. He kills a lot of people in Russia, you know, he's waging three civil wars in the Caucasus, like a lot of r- actual Russians. Now, yeah. This is something that Donald Trump has explicitly said is good about mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin. So this is a really, really weird situation. Right. Um, and, and you know, people turn around and say, well, Vladimir Putin is the only person standing up to terrorists in Syria. Investigations have shown Vladimir Putin has bumped terrorists into Syria, right? He's picked people up from various parts of Russia. Russia is a federation comprising many countries, some of them Muslim majority, where there's been ISIS expansion. He's, his security service has picked people up and sent them to Syria to help ISIS central plan attacks on the West. Like, this is not a fight against terror. Another thing that's pretty interesting to me on this is that speaking only from uh, maybe maybe this is just the leftist perspective on this, but mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of us sort of have grown up with this kind of knowledge and awareness of these tribal alliances that we have uh, with Europe in mm-hmm. form of alliances like NATO. Uh, and so I feel like often we sort of reflexively fall back on supporting these alliances just because we're emotionally invested in them. And at the same time, you have a lot of people also on the left who are very skeptical yes. of uh, those alliances and critical of those alliances because they obviously aren't perfect. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like they tend to sort of overcorrect and overforgive uh, the Russians in this yeah. regard. What is the straight way down this very... Uh, very blinkered alley. Is there a way down? I was just thinking actually this morning, like, what is a good foreign policy response that the Clinton campaign can... And one person that really came to mind was someone you've had on the podcast, Sander Chris Murphy. Really interesting in that he calls out alliances that have problems. He has taken the lead on saying the U.S.-Saudi relationship is bad, but he says we have to figure out our problems with Saudi Arabia. He doesn't say walk away from them or make them give us money. He is a strong supporter of NATO, and he explains why. I think Murphy gives a good model and hopefully something Clinton would follow, saying, I recognize our problems. Okay, so NATO exists essentially as an alliance of Western countries to check the power of Russia. You know, I wouldn't even say that, because to to give it that explanation of, like, being about Russia, I think feeds into Putin's propaganda that NATO only expands to threaten Russia. NATO exists to protect Western well, democracies. But people have said you right. know, that's why NATO existed. NATO's right. expansion was mm-hmm. a mistake because it inflamed that tension with Russia. But that is the core reason for its existence. Is I it would not? say NATO has evolved. Like if you talk to European officials, um, I, I do an ambassador interview series with Christine Canetta, who runs the podcast sometimes, and other folks in the office. The German ambassador, who we interviewed earlier this month, said 
NATO has a lot of challenges, right, right, right now. Eastern Front, which is Russia. Southern Front, which is refugees, right? NATO helps Europe defend itself against a lot of kind of weird transnational threats they wouldn't be able to do on their own. Um, and I think people forget that. And Russia presents it in this way that, like, NATO has enlarged just to basically anger Russia. People are opting to join NATO because they're like, this is the best bet I have for stability in Estonia, you know? Um, there's always been a lot of opinion about whether Donald Trump, is, what his relationship with with the yeah. Putin's are. I mean, we've we've there are a lot of people who suspect that maybe he's a paid stooge. Yeah. Julia Ioff, in writing for Foreign Policy today, suggests that while there's an absolutely it, it's absolutely true that the Russian government would prefer to see Trump in power, that it's probably not right to say that Trump is a paid operative of Vladimir Putin, but. It was weird this week when Donald Trump went out and explicitly said that he had no investments in Russia. In a way, that's true. As IF points out, during the big, big uh, capitalism on steroid period during Russia, yeah. during Russia's uh, sort of like uh, a liberalization after the yeah, fall, yeah, yeah, after the nineties, yeah, basically. Yeah, there was a tremendous opportunity for someone like Donald Trump, a guy who builds luxury hotels, to move into Moscow and make billions of dollars. And many hotel moguls did, mm -hmm. but Donald Trump failed to do so. And she mm -hmm. says this is pretty clear evidence that Donald Trump didn't have any kind of intense or intimate connections with Russian officials because those, if he did, those people would have obviously greased those wheels and there'd be Trump towers galore in Moscow right now. But is there a possibility that there is money somewhere sloshing around between Russia's government or Russian oligarchs and Donald Trump that puts him in the frame of mind where he wants to be uh, amenable to their state, their their state's aims. I'd say the clearest example of this is someone called Carter Page, who is um, not Putin's, but he could might as well be Putin's Trump's top Russia advisor. Uh, he is an American banker. Carter Page has advised Russian state-owned firms for a long time and has a lot to gain from the release of U.S. sanctions against Russia, which have been very strong since 2014 when Russia invaded the middle of Europe. Um, I think there are possibilities of people around Trump, and obviously we haven't seen Trump's tax returns, so there may be kind of financial incentives and imperatives. Well, isn't the most famous example is his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, Paul Manafort. who yes. had done work for Putin-backed uh, client states. Yes. Uh, notably the former president of Ukraine, yeah. uh, Yanukovych. Yanukovych. Um, but I would also say that I, I think it's really important to remember with the weird ideology Trump has proposed, it's also not, it's, it, it doesn't just need to be about money. There's a lot of places in which he does agree with Putin. Uh, we were talking about this managed democracy view of like how just modern democracies should even work. And I think, frankly, with some of the white nationalist connections we've seen to Trump, that is important to consider here, too. Putin is a hero to the far right. Putin is someone David Duke, a uh, noted Trump endorser, talks about all the time, constantly on his website and Twitter. He is a Christian hero. He is a white man. He is strong. He hates gays. So that, that kind of thinking, I think, comes into it, too. So there's just this affinity between white guys and Putin, like, takes his shirt off and rides a horse. Right. And it's just like, wow, I like that. I want to be like that. And, can, and uses, you know, uses the N-word and his press constantly depicts President Obama as a monkey, you know, consistently. 
and stokes uh, the anger of white nationalists and neo-Nazis in his own region to help carry out what he carry out his aims. Right. And if you look at things like uh, Breitbart, you know, Breitbart, a very pro-Trump conservative news outlet, really in many ways, I think, an amplification of a lot of the people around Trump and supporting Trump. Super pro-Putin, super pro-white nationalist, super anti-refugee. You know, there are a lot of threads that come together here, like anti-globalization. Um, so I think the thinking is also quite similar. It doesn't necessarily have to be money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, obviously, it's going to be just an insane thing to watch going forward. Trump, at the press, same press conference we described, said that he would be looking into the possibility of recognizing the Crimea as part of Russia, which right. would be quite a radical shift in American foreign policy thinking. But that he just like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to punt with this answer. You right. don't. Most pre, most presidential candidates wouldn't punt on that answer. But I guess why my question to you guys who've been working on American politics longer than I have is like, do you feel like people on the left or right really get, like think Vladimir Putin is bad or care about associations with Vladimir Putin if you don't explain why that is dangerous and wrong? I think it's possible that uh, I, I can tell you from my own perspective is I feel like I've badly underestimated Putin because, uh, you know, in the past decade, I've come to think of Russia as a nation that uh, is torn, riven by political factionalism and uh, wrecked by uh, financial collapse. And so looking at what Putin's ambitions could possibly be, uh, I didn't really see Russia as much of a threat. How could they finance an invasion right. of Europe? Well, I'm learning that I'm a lot that Putin's a lot smarter than me because one way you can do it is you can destabilize it on the cheap by funding terrorism in Syria right. and sending and create, helping exacerbate a migrant crisis that causes Western Europe to lose faith in their own governing institutions right. and their own national identity and splinter Europe that way. And now he's got a chance with Trump, a guy who um, who kind of talks a lot like an isolationist. Right. And as uh, as uh, as America retreats under a Donald Trump presidency, retreating only in the sense that what we'd be leaving behind would be bombing the crap out of brown right. people. Um, I think Putin gets uh, Putin could fill that vacuum. What's interesting is that Donald Trump says uh, Mexico will pay for the wall right um, between America and Mexico. I think Trump is offering to pay to take the barriers between us and Putin's Russia down mm. uh, for him. And I mm. think that in that way, my previous assessment of Putin being a too cash poor to really waged kind of ambitious attack on Europe that he wants to was incorrect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you see people, I just, this is fascinating to me because you see people like underestimating that threat. I think you look at Jill Stein, who we're all supposed to care about third party candidates. I suppose we should mention Jill Stein. No. Strongly anti-NATO. Strongly, consistently anti-NATO. Um, and the sense that, like, Russia is not a threat to the U.S. and kind of what it stands for in real NATO is used with this sort of, people assume it has this historical freight that's like a shorthand for the West being good. And I think you're right that it's not explained. And the threat of Putin is also not really explained, even if you intuitively get that he's not democratic and that he kills journalists. Right. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, obviously, there's going to be, God knows, probably more to say about this in the coming weeks because it's going to be an onion people want to peel. Uh, but uh, we'll look forward to talking about it again, uh, even though it's kind of a scary thing to talk about. Akbar, thank you for joining thank us. Thank you. Arthur, thank you. Thank you. And we will be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta with a big assist from Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by House Minority Leader Harry Reid, as well as Huffington Post reporters Akbar Ahmed, Zach Carter, Christine Canetta, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Grimm, Mike McAuliffe, and Sam Stein. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.